From Washington, I'm David Schultz, and this is Talking Tax. KPMG issued relatively clean financial statements for a handful of its banking industry clients earlier this year, and then a few weeks later, those banks were out of business. The Big Four firm audited many of the banks that failed amid interest rate shocks earlier this year, and now it's facing a lot of questions from a lot of people about this. Bloomberg tax reporter Amanda Icone is reporting on what went wrong at KPMG and what this means for the firm and for accounting as a whole. And I started off by asking her just to give me a list of all the KPMG audited banks that went belly up. Well, three of KPMG's U.S. audit clients have failed this spring, um, starting with Silicon Valley Bank, fell into FDIC receivership just two weeks after KPMG signed off on the lender's most recent financial statements. Um, Then came Signature Bank, which lasted just 11 days after releasing its audited financials. And First Republic Bank fell into FDIC receivership about a month after KPMG issued its audit report on the bank's 2022 financial statements. So it's it's worth noting that you know losing a client because they go out of business is bad, of course. Uh, but it's not just that; it's the fact that they gave them you know I guess clean bills of health, for lack of a better word, right before they they went under. Is that that seems like it's adding a whole other dimension to this? That's right. As one source put it to me, you know, the audited financials are expected to have a a longer shelf life than a month. Um, <laughs> right. Part of the audit it is especially these end-of-year audits, um, you know, auditors do review the quarterly reports, but the end of the year is is the, the where the bulk of the work comes for an audit. And, you know, it, that also includes a review of whether or not this company is going to be viable 12 months out, whether or not it's still going to be operating 12 months, and whether or not there are any conditions or risks that might threaten that. And, and so the, the idea that these banks could issue their financial statements, issue an audit report without any red flags or warnings from the auditor, and then fail within days or weeks um, is where all the questions arise and why there's so much scrutiny right now on the work that KPMG did for these three banks. Yeah. And so let's get into the consequences that KPMG is facing as a result of this. Uh, You reported that there could be a suit from the FDIC coming after KPMG, also suits from the shareholders of these banks that failed, and there may be even be a congressional probe. Um, tell me about all the people and entities that are coming after KPMG right now. Sure. Well, first, the, the firm has been sued um, already by shareholders um, who have also sued bank managers and other stakeholders involved for its work on these banks. It's possible that the FDIC, as the receiver of these banks, could pursue KPMG. There is um, precedent for that. The FDIC did pursue another audit firm over its work for a bank called Colonial Bank, which collapsed during the financial crisis and ultimately won and, and settled with the firm PwC for its work in that case. Um, that has not happened yet. Right now, as the receiver, technically, the FDIC is the bank. So it remains to be seen how, how those lawsuits play out and whether or not the FDIC turns turns the tables and pursues the auditor as well. There's also scrutiny from Capitol Hill. Um, Senators Richard Blumenthal and 
Ron Johnson have opened uh, a really a, a wide-ranging inquiry into the firm and have asked for a cache of records relating to KPMG's audit and advisory work for the, this trio of failed banks. The firm has said it would cooperate and it has continued to defend its audit work for these three banks. The firm's regulator, too, um, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, has said that it would dig into the work that auditors performed for banks in its current round of inspections. Uh, you know, that, that's a statement that goes beyond just the work of KPMG, but it, the board can't and won't talk about ongoing investigations, so it's not clear whether or not it might also face additional regulatory scrutiny for its work here. The other thing I found pretty remarkable about your story is that this is not even the first time that KPMG has been in trouble for its handling of its banking industry clients. Uh, you cited a lot of other situations where problems came up, and I want to focus on one in particular in 2019 that resulted in criminal charges and a $50 million settlement. Can you tell me what happened there um, with, with that uh, particular problem? Sure. I think you're referring to the 2019 um, settlement with the SEC, the firm agreed to pay $50 million um, and admitted that it had tried to cheat on its annual PCAOB inspections. The individuals behind that plot were also convicted of federal criminal charges related to that scheme. At its root, the firm was struggling in its regulatory inspections. Um, these, these inspections by the PCOB form the backbone of its oversight of the audit industry. And, and KPMG was in particular struggling with its bank audits. The firm's own efforts to improve and, and, and bolster its inspection findings weren't getting results. And, and this scheme was sort of hatched out of this effort to show improvement on its regulatory inspections. You know, once the firm learned about the scheme, it, it quickly responded, right? It informed regulators about what it had uncovered. It investigated and it started taking action. It replaced top leaders in the audit practice. It added independent directors to its governing board and, and many other actions that we've reported on previously. Since then, the firm has also invested heavily into its core audit platform to try and better connect the PCOB's requirements to its audit work and as well as to make uh, better use of really cutting-edge tools like artificial intelligence to help auditors scrutinize more transactions and, and to focus more on really high-risk areas. Those reforms and those efforts to improve its audit work continue to this day, and the firm's inspection findings have improved, uh, basically catching up to its larger peers. But, you know, those three failed bank clients in less than two months you know, is putting those reforms to the test. Yeah, I'll say. Um, and I want to get into some of the uh, people that you spoke to for your story and their reactions to sort of neutral observers, people who are not involved in the big four who are looking at this from the outside. They were really, really discouraged. And they had some pretty negative things to say, not just about KPMG, but about kind of the whole profession in general. Um, it seems like people are really frustrated that, this kind of thing keeps happening over and over again, where companies are given audits that are maybe not as aggressive as they need to be. Can you tell me about the reaction? It sounds like people are, are pretty upset and discouraged. 
Yeah, so there are really two schools of thought here. One, that auditors aren't to blame. They can't predict the future. They aren't responsible for a bank's strategy, not the customers the bank works with or how it manages its capital or how it manages its risks, right? That's the job of management. And banking regulators have pointed to poor management, mismanagement as the root causes of the failures at both Signature and Silicon Valley. The other school of thought here is that auditors have to consider whether there is substantial doubt about a company's ability to continue operating over the next 12 months. Auditors would look for downward shifts in the company's outlook, such as selling off significant assets or struggling to meet capital requirements. They also have to consider market-moving events like a, a merger or layoffs at significant deposit holders that could impact the company's financial health. Those events might trigger disclosures or even accounting adjustments. And that's really where the the questions arise from, you know, the sources you mentioned that, that are concerned about kind of the, the state of affairs, not just with KPMG, but more broadly is, you know, what questions are auditors asking? How are they responding to the rapid rise in interest rates? Are they meeting the current basic audit standards? And there's a part two to that camp, and this kind of gets back to your, your core question, which is, are audit standards doing their job? Are they providing investors with the backstop that they expect? The PCOB, which is the U.S. audit regulator, um, plans to overhaul a number of really crucial rules that, when taken together, would set a higher bar for auditors one of those projects would update its rules for those going concern reviews, for example, um, and is trying to address longstanding concerns from investors and investor advocates that the the rule book needs to change, that the, that the way audits have been done for public companies isn't enough, and that it's time to update those rules, um, to your point, because, you know, corporate collapses continue to happen and we continue to see audit failures. And, and that's really interesting to me because, you know, I was just sort of uh, doing some some Googling and I found out that this summer is the 20th anniversary of the dissolution of Arthur Anderson, which seems like it has to be one of the most important events in, you know, the history of accounting, certainly in the recent history of accounting. And based on our conversation here today, it sounds like a lot of the problems that were found in the Arthur Anderson debacle um, are still being worked out and still haven't been totally solved. Do you uh, agree with that? And and if so, why is it taken 20 plus years to sort out all these problems with the profession? Yeah. So I, I would say that, you know, there are indications and, and measurements that... And if you talk to audit committee members who've been around for a long time, that financial reporting reliability has greatly improved in the two decades since the collapse of Anderson and its perhaps most notorious clients, Enron and WorldCom. Um, but to your point, co corporate collapses and audit failures haven't stopped. And investors continue to call for tougher rules and and also a better scorecard to judge the work of auditors. They want a, a, a bigger picture look at 
the effectiveness of auditors and, and you know how the auditors police their own work that there are other barometers that they want to be able to measure and track to judge for themselves whether or not they're paying for a good audit or not but you know in some ways to your point there are still factors around today that haven't changed right auditors are still working off of a rule book that their industry largely wrote um you know the board is trying to change that and, and update some of those rules um, but the the rule book is is significantly still the same. Firms still face the same financial pressures to keep the audit profitable and to grow their business. Those pressures can threaten their independence, can weaken their resolve, if you will, to challenge management. Um, that's something we've heard a lot about from that other regulator we haven't mentioned yet, the Securities and Exchange Commission, particularly its chief accountant, Paul Muncher, he's talked a lot about um, ethics and independence and you know firms' business strategies over the last year or two. So those factors haven't gone away. Um, I, I would add that they are also aren't unique to the U.S. market. Um, we see similar pressures facing um, big four affiliates in other countries. We see regulators in other countries um, you know, leaning into trying to find better ways to police independence, to ensure that auditors are able to be objective and independent of their clients. So the, the, these challenges that the firms face in the U.S. certainly aren't unique to the U.S. Yeah. All right. Finally, let's bring it back to KPMG itself. Um, do you think that this latest uh, sort of scandal, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, is going to affect the company in the bottom line, I guess. Are they going to really, you know, feel uh, some serious pain as a result of this? Or do you think that ultimately this will be more or less a blip and that they'll sort of keep going and it'll be kind of business as usual over there? So that that remains to be seen. I mean, it, it can take years for these court challenges and any regulatory investigations that may result to to play out, um, and, and for sort of the facts to come out. We we don't know the specifics of how KPMG responded here. It's it's possible that they did everything right. Um, that that they did follow the standards, and as they have said, that they you know they have stood by behind their audits. Um, we don't know what what the outcome will be there, but, but you know the big four firms have each faced similar scrutiny in the past and survived. Um, yes, the firm faces court possible court settlements, possible regulatory penalties, um, and and reputational damage, but you know they've they've been able to endure um, similar scrutiny in the past. All right. Well, that was Amanda Icone talking about KPMG and banking and auditing. Uh, Amanda, thank you so much for talking. Glad to be here, David. Thank you. And that's it for today's Talking Tax. You can find up-to-the-minute news and the latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. Today's Talking Tax was produced by myself, David Schultz. Meg Shreve is our editor. Our executive producer is Josh Block from Washington. I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening. I felt like I was in jail every day when I was going to work. I'm like, I got to get out of here. My executive order calls on the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work for. This season on Uncommon Law, we're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban 
on non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive, they can be exploitative. We'll talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry, only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit. I remember getting served my cease and desist and thinking that this can't be right, this can't be fair, how can she get away with this? And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses to keep their companies afloat. I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules. And you decide if you want to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry. Plus, does the FTC under chair Lena Khan even have the power to pass this rule? Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority to check unfair methods of competition. There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition. Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets. Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.